0: This is Michael Cox for the InCommon podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Billy Lee Turner II, Regents Professor at the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University. Billy holds other positions as well, including Distinguished Global Futures Scientist at the Julie Ann Wrigley Global Futures Laboratory, also at Arizona State University, member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, and Associate Editor of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, focused on sustainability. Billy is a geographer and human environmental scientist who studies land use and land cover change from prehistory to the present, and he has also contributed to our understanding of the determinants of social vulnerability and resilience. Billy works on deforestation, primarily in Mexico and Central America, and urban design in arid environments, especially the American Southwest. I spoke with Billy about two specific topics that he has written on, one being the reasons for the decline of a lowland Mayan population around the years 800 to 1000, and the other being a long-standing debate between Thomas Malthus, who predicted famously that exponential population growth would inevitably outstrip linear growth in resources, and Esther Bosrup, who argued that population-induced scarcity would motivate the necessary innovations to avoid systematic decline. We also discussed the book that Billy recently wrote, entitled The Anthropocene, A 100 Questions and Answers for Understanding the Human Impact on the Global Environment. This is being published by Agenda Publishing, which is the same publisher of my forthcoming book on environmental property rights. And it was my editor at Agenda who initially introduced me to Billy before I asked if he would be interested in being interviewed for the podcast. I'm very glad that he was, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Billy Lee Turner II. Billy, can we jump right in? You are well known for your work as, I would say, an environmental archeologist. And you also call yourself a human environmental scientist. So I'm gonna start by asking you the same question I ask at the beginning of every interview for this podcast now, the Orion story question. When you look back on your career, and try to make sense of the path that you've taken, what is the answer that you come up with? What were the formative experiences or decisions that feel particularly salient to you when kind of reconstructing the narrative of what got you to where you are?
1: Well, one actually thinks about that quite a bit, I believe, as they they become a little bit older and and think about their career, but... um, Let's see, I was raised, I'm a faculty brat. I was raised by a botany professor, uh, a taxonomist, actually. And we never took vacations. We were always out in the middle of the desert somewhere, West Texas, Chihuahuan Desert of Mexico, collecting plants. In that process, I learned I'd never be a taxonomist. (laughs) But I was fascinated in looking at the landscapes, as a child, the different landscapes um, uh, that we went through. And even though I didn't enter uh, into anything uh, in my early college career uh, dealing with landscapes, I simply accidentally discovered a geography course. And in that particular course, we dealt with a lot of the issues that um, I had not formally uh, addressed, but had inculcated in my mind, so to speak, During all those uh, uh, um, plant collecting activities I had done with my father. And so, in that particular process, um, um, I decided to go into geography. But actually, as I got into it, I became very interested in a subfield called cultural ecology. Now, at the time, cultural ecology uh, actually came out of anthropology and then was picked up in the geographical community. Um, Therefore, I began to take a lot of anthropology courses as well. Um, And I had to make a decision when it was time to go to graduate school, whether that would be in anthropology or or geography, and quite uh, uh, literally, I picked geography because it gave me greater latitude to pick and choose uh, what I would learn and uh, the topics uh, that I would study whereas the anthropology programs wanted me to uh, take courses that I wasn't particularly particularly interested in. Although I must say that I was terribly influenced by a lot of anthropology professors. I never considered myself an environmental archeologist. I never considered myself an archeologist per se. In fact, what I wish to say is that many um, there's many um, disciplines in subfields that get into questions that archaeologists uh, undertake, and we think of as archaeology, and yes, I did work uh, early on on a lot of archaeological projects, uh, dealing especially dealing with the Maya. How I got there was absolute, absolutely serendipitous. Uh, my father had crisscrossed Africa in 1957, uh, taking pictures of landscapes, uh, dealing with the botanical aspects. Of landscapes, and I fell in love uh, with Africa. I looked at thousands and thousands of slides, and I decided that I wanted to work on pastoral nomads in Eastern Africa, Um, sort of a romantic um, element in me. And uh, my master's degree study, in fact, was a synthesis library study of pastoral nomadism in, in Africa, Eastern Africa. I then went to the University of Wisconsin uh, and wished to pursue that line of research, cultural ecology of pastoral nomad. When I arrived, however, the Africanists were gone. One had left, one had not received tenure, and there was only one cultural ecologist in the program. And that cultural ecologist was a Latin Americanist I did not particularly want to work in Latin America, but his argument was, I'll take you under my wing. Uh, and by the way, he was a fantastic individual, William Deniman. Uh, but, you know, you have to work in Latin America. You can't You can't go to Africa. Well, I didn't know what I was going to work on in Latin America. But at the time, I was terribly interested in the work of Esther Boshroop and what she was telling us about agricultural landscapes. Um, And I was working on sort of the theoretical conceptual side uh, of her work. Um, And that happened to coincide with my mentor walking in the room one day and stating that there was an archeological project uh, that was having some difficulties uh, in who was the leader and how it was going to operate, et cetera. And they had turned to the uh, University of Wisconsin and asked various individuals there to be involved, including my mentor. And my mentor simply said, go find a project on the Maya. This is the serendipity, never intended to work in this area uh, at all. So I started reading all this work about Mayanists and and the, the ancient Maya, the collapse of the Maya, the depopulation of the Maya and Drawing on Esther Belschrup, I uh, instantly realized that they were wrong. They meaning the overall argument that the archaeological community was making at the time. What they were finding at the time was a very large, densely populated, uh, urban-based uh, um, civilization, and yet they were arguing about uh, fantastic slash and burn systems of agriculture that could have supported it. Well, if you were a believer in both, you had to immediately say couldn't be possible, right? That you have densities of that level, have land pressures of a certain kind. You have to have intensive agriculture um, uh, uh, to pursue that. And so those two things coming together, I told my professor, I'm I'll go, I'll go down there and find out how the Maya were practicing agriculture. And so that's serendipitously how I moved into what uh, you're, you were calling um, uh, environmental archaeology or Mayan archaeology at the time. And I was very fortunate to work with some outstanding archaeologists um, throughout the entire Maya area. And that's how I got to um, do the early work that I did um, which dealt with changing the whole perception of how the ancient Maya uh, uh, were able to manipulate their environment in in a variety of ways uh, to maintain what we now know as the large populations uh, that the the Maya had. What's very interesting about all that is today we have these new LIDAR data sets that are coming out, uh, it seems uh, like almost monthly, And they show uh, emphatically how densely populated uh, this area of the world was at one time, supporting, if you would, the um, uh, early work that we did on the systems of agriculture uh, that supported the Maya. And then that got us into the questions of, well, what did that do to the environment? And did that environment, uh, did the environmental changes that the um, uh, Maya undertook, um, did that in any way have feedbacks on the uh, climate? And uh, and to what degree did climate uh, play a role in the collapse of the Maya? So that's sort of how I got there. And uh, what I did in the early part, part of my career, you asked me as well, that I call myself a human environmental scientist as opposed as opposed to a geographer. Well, that's a very interesting and I think worthwhile to have a chat on that. Many geographers will tell you they're geographers and then say, I'm a spatial scientist. I'm a geographer, I'm a human environment. Why? That's because the discipline actually has been historically over the long term splintered between sort of two areas of interest, one that I call the, call the core logical sciences, interested in place, space, uh, spatial orientations um, and whatnot. And that has dominated geography at least since the 1960s, if not before in the United, in, in the United States anyway. However, there has long been, and before uh, that group gained control of, of how to identify geography, a a, a geographical science that was focused on human-environment relationships. And that can be traced all the way back to Alexander von Humboldt and then traced through German geography. And then it made it to the U.S. uh, And in the U.S., actually, it, it got into a bad way. And that bad way is it led to environmental determinism not just in the US, but unfortunately in the US, it sort of dominated the human environment aspect of geography. And for very, very good reasons, the, the geographical community abandoned that orientation to study. That's Billy, the... can I?
0: Can, maybe you were about to do this, but could you talk a bit about what environmental determinism is and why it was to be avoided?
1: Sure. The early human environment work coming out of the, the, the German community was focused on this relationship between people and the landscape. To what degree do people make the landscape? To what degree does the landscape feed back and, 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 and affect uh, people or the civilization or the systems of agriculture and whatnot? By the time it made it to the United States, which very interestingly was driven by a, a, a A geologist at Harvard who essentially took part of the geology program and ramped it up to uh, uh, geography, very much interested in how the biophysical world affected the social world. Right? So that basically you could explain culture, you could explain many, many aspects of of what people do in the world uh, owing to the environment in which Uh, They occupied. And that led to a whole series of what we now consider and and should rightly consider um, sort of wild and in some cases silly arguments, you know, such as um, uh, work that um, high intellect was associated with uh, people that lived in the Westerlies. Because they have high pressures and low pressures constantly moving across the landscape. And so this biophysical part of the world, right, affected the mental part of the world, which then affected um, uh, the advancement of civilization and so forth. if we ultimately get on to uh, Jared Diamond, you know, that's one of the criticisms, of course, that uh, some people read into his work that he's making that particular kinds of claim. I don't quite think so, but um, that's a, a different issue to discuss. But anyway, environmental determinism uh, was not just uh, present, it actually dominated how uh, geography was introduced to high school's in the United States uh, at the turn of the 20th century. As that gave way to all sort of racial claims and and whatnot that followed it in the absolute incorrect abandonment of of that orientation into geography, um, many geographers were so stung by the negativism um, that came along with the discipline associated with Uh, environmental determinism which was also called the geographic factor um, that the discipline at large needed to get get rid of it and so getting rid of that was the explosion of going back to the corological approach the place the space dominating geography in fact uh even as sustainability science was coming on board, I I remember giving talks in geography programs about human environment relationships, in which the question was raised over and over again: "Aren't you taking us back to environmental determinism? Right that that the environment is something that we ought to be ought to be paying attention to as um, as opposed to the the economic side um, of the problem."
0: That's helpful, Billy. Thank you. Can you? So, you started to talk about your work um, contributing to understanding the collapse of at least part of the Mayan civilization. Can you take us back there and give us a bit of the history of how these arguments played out there? You mentioned that it, there was a move away from kind of environmentally deterministic explanations, largely, I understand, driven by climate. Can you talk about how this argument and counterargument played out in that particular case and how you contributed to it?
1: Yeah, sure. The um when I entered the uh the studies of um, the Maya, I was not asking the question of why the collapse, um but It was just very difficult to avoid. And in fact, the kinds of work that we were doing on what were the uh, agricultural systems and how did it affect the the environment per se uh, uh, was just absolutely critical uh, to the entire question of the collapse. We should point out that today, uh, many Mayan archaeologists would be upset at using the word collapse. Uh, meaning that the Maya, Maya are still there. The, the Maya were there long after the so-called collapse that occurs about 900 common era. Um, <clears throat> perhaps a better way of, of addressing it is that a, a large suction of the Maya area was depopulated, significantly depopulated, you know, such that an area that was... Um, home to hundreds of thousands of people, uh, became a tropical forest, and was that way when the Spaniards arrived. In fact, Cortez almost dies uh, <laughs> trying to get through the tropical forest of the Payton, uh, can't find anyone that's living there, and ultimately is saved by stumbling upon what remained of um, some Maya in, in the northern Payton area. Okay, so if we come back to the question of human environment relationships in the Maya actually the geographers were early involved in the uh, in the early part of the 20th century on this question and actually had a deterministic kind of uh, uh, view that is a one fellow did some work uh, in the copan Valley of Honduras and came to the conclusion that what had happened uh, in that area over time as it got wetter and wetter And as it became wetter, that allowed these disease vectors uh, to enter. And that somehow the depopulation, and let's call the area that was depopulated a collapsed area. Um, That collapsed area, uh, hence, was um, affected by changes in the environment. And that apparently the Maya had no ability to um, overcome those particular changes. Now, through time, the whole question of was the environment good enough uh, to support large populations? All these kinds of themes uh, kept resurfacing. However, by the time I entered the ball game, uh, the anti-determinist viewpoint was so strong that to start pointing at the environment per se as a driver of this collapse was immediately raised the question of determinism. It was sort of a no-no. You couldn't go in that particular area. Now mind you, that was not where we were. We weren't there to try to explain that climate somehow dictated what happened to the Maya. But we were pointing out that they had really changed their landscapes. They had taken a, um, a wet-dry tropical forest zone and denuded large, large sections of it. They had changed the hydrology of wetlands. Uh, they had done any number of things that any um, innovative people would have done uh, to manipulate that particular environment to support the population uh, that it had. But those changes had to have uh, impacts um, on the my, for instance you cut the um you cut down that forest and you lose massive amounts of evapotranspiration uh, that go into the atmosphere and hence feedback as rainfall it turns out in this area that the limiting factor for um, soil nutrient uh, quality is um phosphorus uh, which it gains from um, from dust, much of it's gained by dust in the air, which is captured by the canopy. And so these things were being lost um, by the manipulations of that landscape. Well, then something happened. And this happened uh, during the time I was actually working uh, in the Maya area. That is the paleoecologist entered it in, in a big way. And they came in and started doing work and Over and over and over again, kept finding strong evidence of massive, massive intensive drought uh, that happened to coincide with the depopulation of the area uh, that we're talking about, the so-called collapse area. This became so large, so many different sites, so many different ways of of, of identifying the drought. Uh, was it via stalactites? Was it uh, via the wax factor in leaves? Was it via um, um, cores, um, you know, taken uh, uh, from lakes and whatnot? That it became quite clear that that there was significant drought and it had lasted for quite some time, and it was quite intensive. Um, That got to a point where we simply could not ignore, the community could not ignore the fact that drought was present. And in fact, uh, during the 1970s, the archeologists had gathered together and concluded that there was some sort of broad system changes that had taken place. And they hadn't emphasized drought so much, but nevertheless, they were identifying changes in human environment relationships. What the work that I and others did and then what the paleoecologists did was provide, if you would, the specificities uh, behind what those changes in the human environment uh, relationships were. So the bottom line is um, drought probably, most likely, played a large role uh, in the depopulation of what we could call the central Maya lowlands. This is sort of southern uh, Quintana Roo, Campeche, northern Pétain uh, region. It played a role, but it played a role because the Maya themselves amplified that drought by the changes that they had made uh, in the landscape. But then you can come along and say, well, the Maya had confronted other drought interludes in the past and always recovered. They didn't just recover, they recovered and escalated in terms of the the signifiers of highest civilization. Why didn't they this time? And that remains a really, really interesting question. Now we've speculated that um, it's because trade route relationships changed. That the Maya had escalated uh, to um uh, the role that they had in in the central Maya lowlands because they dominated north-south trade from the Caribbean and the South coming across the Yucatan Peninsula up into up into Mexico, and that after uh, that collapse, trade went around the peninsula in uh, big canoes. In fact, Columbus actually intercepted one of these canoes. Uh, that was uh, trading around the around the peninsula. The problem with our argument is that we don't know bef- uh, if this change in the trade routes was a result of the depopulation right or triggered it was one of the factors that triggered the depopulation. But surely there was something going on on the socioeconomic side um, that made the Maya decide to simply abandon abandon the area. And to this, I point to uh, the great Carl Butzer, who uh, just recently passed away. Uh, Carl was a, a, a scholar of human environment relationships in both the contemporary and historical times, and he always pointed out that the more you can get to the history per se, that is the written work, the more you find that the simple answers that we're getting from paleoecology and the ecological, you know, community uh, don't quite hold. There's just too much nuance. There's too much complexity, and so always be careful of of the simple of the simple explanation. And I suppose that's sort of where I stand on the question of the Maya today.
0: What do you think about the interpretation then that drought was a necessary but not sufficient condition for like social deterioration? Is that an oversimplification? Like it needed to be there, but there was also other explanations that you needed to layer on top of it.
1: That's certainly where I stand. I don't think we can place it on uh, the drought interlude, uh, the, the last drought interlude anyway, in and of itself but it played a huge role. Okay. Absolutely no doubt about it.
0: So a second question about, and this is about environmental determinism. It seems like you're describing what is a pretty common social pattern um, within academia, outside of academia, among people, that you have this initial idea and you'll have proponents of that and then you'll have pushback against that that says, no, no, no. And that this other community problematizes that, but then in problematizing this approach, because it has led to some problematic social outcomes within academia, within science, that is then dismissed. You you know you called it a no no, or there's you you flip flop from it being kind of the answer to everything to it being a taboo, mm-hmm. and it seems like that happens a lot of the time where you'll have one community, it's very kind of inter esque right? So there's one group that says, no, this is, and I know this is a caricature, but I just feel like this is something that happens a lot where you'll have one group that says, this is the answer. Another group says, no, 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 we can't ever talk about that. That's this is all bad. And so you kind of have this flip-flopping of something being all good or all bad. And I think that happens a lot, particularly when you have competing groups and you often do in science and in practice. How much of this characterization of the social dynamics behind the debate about environmental determinism resonates with you? Am yeah, I on to something?
1: I, I think you've articulated it quite well. um uh, uh, the back and forth certainly was there and it's it was at it's been at play throughout the entire 20th century and probably has mellowed a bit uh in the first part of this century. Um Meaning that there truly were uh, camps that believe that. Maybe a better way of saying it is: we went from uh, a deterministic geographic factor view to a no and a no-no that lasted for quite some time in the latter part of the of the twentieth um, uh, century. But then the change that's come on is now going back the other way a bit in the sense that the paleoecological community has so strongly demonstrated environment matters in some way, Um, um, uh, at least in the case of the Mayan, and and the more and more we look around the world, such that the empirical evidence so strongly correlates with so many of the Items that we might be looking at in human environment history that you have to pay some attention to it. You can't just say, no, no, we're going to avoid it because of some conceptual or theoretical framework uh, that we have. And you have to begin to at least contemplate um, how that matters, you know, which um, raises a whole series of things because we're now into not just addressing what happened in the past, we're trying to project what's going to happen in the future uh, with changes that are happening in the climate. So um, the whole notion of going into camps and pointing fingers at the other and saying, no, no, is probably not the way to go. We need to try to be as open as possible and as integrative as possible.
0: Yeah, so, Billy, you're kind of preempting my next question was, what do you think the implications of this work are for Kind of current human environment relationships and the study of them.
1: Well, I would have uh, one particular thought. I've actually worked uh, worked with several people writing on this particular topic, um, which is it's dangerous uh, to look at the past and certainly at the distant past and use it as an analog for the future. You know, the condition of human environment relationships just change too dramatically, not just the technology, but the whole way we govern uh, ourselves and whatnot. You go down the list of everything is just so dramatically changed over time uh, that analogs are not particularly useful. Our suggestion is what we need to be looking at are uh, the attributes of changes in the past, um, the pace of the change the magnitude of the change, and that they may provide insights. Uh, today, we pay a lot of attention to questions of tipping elements or tipping points and systems, right, that will drive the system into, into a new state. Um, but we don't necessarily have a lot of uh, advances yet in telling us um, what is the magnitude or the pace of these changes that lead to that tipping point. There is some very good systems work that's now showing us that there are signals and systems that suggest we might be moving into um, a different state, uh, but we're still a long ways from applying that to human environment relationships.
0: So Billy, earlier you mentioned that the work of Esther Basrip was uh, formative for you. And prior to this interview, you you shared with me an article in which you and a colleague Examined, uh, built on Bostrip's work in an analysis of a set of farming households in Bangladesh. So I'd love to return to a discussion of Bostrip's work and how it relates to Thomas Malthus's work. Could you kind of provide the audience with the background they need to understand that case? What were the arguments and counter arguments between these two fa- these two kind of famous figures in the realm of population demography and the environment. Sure, I'd love
1: to on that. Um, but let me provide a little anecdote first. Uh, Great. Yeah. I love anecdotes. Uh, so uh, as a young graduate student, I was being honed on Esther Boshrup. Uh Boshrup had made uh, quite a mark uh, by sort of challenging um uh some of the economic community, and certainly Malthus, uh, about orientations of agricultural change, and I'll get to that in just a moment. Um, I and many, many other cultural ecologists were quite taken with Bosrip's work, and I decided to do a little study in which we tried to see if her basic thesis that as population densities or land pressures increased uh, among subsistence farmers, did in fact their intensity of cultivation increase accordingly? That was consistent with her uh, particular view, and um, lo and behold, we were able to to show quantitatively in a systematic study that this was so. Well, I I went to an archaeological commu- uh, meeting, and I can't remember what year, but it was in the um, it was in the eighties, and. Um, It happened to be, by the way, at ASU,
0: uh,
1: where I'm located now. And in this particular meeting, uh, when you stood up to ask a question, uh, you had to say your name and where you're from. So I stood up and said, you know, I'm me and I'm from here. And I asked my question and I sit down. As soon as I sit down, this hand grabs me on behind me on the shoulder. And I turned around and there was Esther Bozrup. (laughs) oh wow and she said get in the hall (laughs) so we got up and walked in the hall i thought oh no uh what's going to happen and she said did you write this article and she pulled the article out and put it and i said yes ma'am that's me and she said "Convince me that uh you know the study was really done well Well, she loved it, but, uh, you know, she wanted to make sure that uh, the data were correct, that the you know, that the various techniques we'd use were robust and whatnot. So that's my anecdote. That was my first meeting with Esther, and uh, it was quite something. Okay, so... The The difference between uh, the Boserupian and the Malthusian line are, are quite simple. We all know the classic crude Malthus. Remember, the crude Malthus or simplistic Malthus, uh, that population always has the capacity uh, to grow more quickly than the food produ- food production system. And as a result, population will always exceed that particular system unless it's checked right? You know, check by population uh, attempts to control population or out migration or, or whatever it is. Well, one reason that uh, uh, would hold is that Malthus considers, uh, considered basically in the simplistic notion, he considered uh, technological change, right? Which would shift the system in, into a different production state uh, to be exogenous uh, to the population food system. Bolschrup had done her work uh, looking at subsistence farmers around the tropical world and had seen something else, which is she she saw them changing the intensity of of their cultivation uh, as the land pressures increased. In other words, the technological shifts that were coming along that the farmers were using were endogenous to the system. Right. So they may, they knew how to uh, create terraces, but they didn't use them, right, until the land pressures dictated that they had to use a terracing to improve the cultivation systems um, and food production systems that uh, they were after. So she introduced this particular theme, which, by the way, as I understand uh, talking to her and many others, was uh, not well taken by the. Um, economic community early on. And she actually had trouble uh, publishing her book uh, originally because basic uh, various economists were sort of hostile to some of the ideas that she, she was bringing up. But once it was published, how many, you know, versions of it came out because, you know, it was so um, insightful and useful for some, so many different disciplines. Um, so anyway, What you have then are sort of two different views of the relationship between populations and agriculture, but they don't have to be uh, the total antithesis of one another. Uh, And we've tried to uh, write on that in several ways. This is one instance, by the way, which I actually created a schematic cartoon of that, but never published it, but then it was picked up by someone else and, and published and uh, has been sort of uh, insightful. And basically, what we've been able to do is show that, that in most of human history, people have been in the Bosorupian stage, right? meaning that they had or learned the uh, technological shifts that were necessary to keep up uh, with the land pressures. In most instances, we're talking about general now, generally across acro- uh, across the world. Um However, it is theoretically or conceptually possible that you can reach a stage in which that next level of technology uh, is not available. And in that particular situation, you can get the kinds of land stresses that could lead to a Malthusian. That means, right, there's just too many people to feed um, uh, given given the system. Um, And so what we find is we can conceptually consider um, the hit long-term history of population and agriculture as one in which the population rises in in concert with agriculture, a la Bosrop, and then it reaches a stage uh, in which it could, potentially could, go into a uh, Malthusian sort of crisis. Uh, by the way, the anthropologist uh, Clifford Geertz talked about that stage of, of right and in which um, you, you get a one on one, you know, a one unit increase uh, in, in the cultivation practice only gives you one unit um, output return. In other words, what a, that's so marginal economists would say no one would ever pursue a one on one sort of situation like that. But in most instances, uh, as we reach that Malthusian possibility, we've had the technological jump that put us back into a Bosorupian case. right? So the most recent uh, in the distant, in the recent past would have been, of course, the Green Revolution, right? That we reached that point, which it really looked like the world was going to be stressed and bam, the Green Revolution came out, moved us into a whole new system. And so we're back in the Bosorupian stage. And now are we meeting the next next one? I know there are a lot of people in the National Academy. were very concerned that we might be reaching a next one, but then along we've you know we've had um, um, the genetic kind of um, um, uh, synthesis that have come on board. So I hope that explained a little bit. Now, if we get back to um to Bangladesh, what we were looking at there was to see, oh, I should say that. What I did that was a little bit different from Esther uh, was trying to account for the role of environment in the Boshrupian conceptualization. Meaning, was it always true that you got what Boshrup got or would that be affected by the environment that one was situated in? And what we were able to demonstrate was that let's call them middle range environments, both worked, right? You got an increase in population, you got a a, a commensurate increase in in, uh, cultivation or agricultural changes. But if you had poor environments or if you had really prime outstanding environments, both of those amplified the relationship between population and agriculture uh, for different reasons. Uh, for the, let's uh, uh, say, more difficult environments, uh, if you were going to keep that land pressure there, it had to make a dramatic shift in technology to, to have the upkeep. Uh, if you were in the prime environments, you could just keep you know, in, intensifying the agriculture uh, in terms of how often you're cultivating the land um, uh, without too much difficulty. So what we were able to do was show Um, um, that is now called induced intensification, uh, that the Bostrupian thing operates, but it operates within the context of the quality of the environment that you're you're operating in. And that's what we were looking for in Bangladesh. So we had a whole series of different villages that were operating in different environmental um, uh, conditions. And we were trying to see... The degree to which we could um, identify quantitatively how they were performing, and basically our interpretation was what I just informed you about, uh, was operative. The really bad community, uh, bad environmental communities, and good environmental communities amplified their their intensification over the middle range, which was more consistent with what Bolshevik argued.
0: Where does the presence of spillovers or negative externalities fit into all of this right because there is a story that the green revolution okay so maybe we interpret the green revolution as an example of induced intensification and so technology is endogenous and so you know to me that's an optimistic story certainly versus malthus but the green revolution brought with it a lot of kind of negative side effects yeah That the theory, you know, so how does that change how we view this theory? Is it a correlate, like, is it a separate set of observations? Do you fit it into the theory? How does that relationship play out in your mind?
1: Yeah, Uh, understand that everything that I've articulated to date was is focused primarily on subsistence cultivators, meaning um, um, farmers who are not engaged solely in commercial production. Okay? Okay, so they're they're not necessarily responding to the market. All right. well that's a very small number of uh, farmers in the world um you know by today's standard Boltrop argued very strongly that it was applicable uh in in uh, among commercial farmers or market market producers uh it's certainly applicable in many ways to uh, the great bulk of semi-subsistence semi-commercial farmers um that are operative today when you get into uh, large-scale commercial cultivation, I'm not sure how operative it is at all. And I haven't paid enough attention um, uh, uh, to that. But the spillovers um, that that you're talking about, if we come back to sort of the um, subsistence or semi-subsistence uh, farmers around the world are, are really quite real, as you've articulated it. We, we all know that, for instance, um, Small farmers in India can get crowded out of cultivation because they can't afford the capital, right, to put into the green revolution kinds of crops or they lose access to the irrigation that's required for the green. There's just levels of input uh, that are going to push out uh, certain individuals. And we can you know, go on and on and on about all those exceptions. So yes, the bottom line is once we get into the complexity of international trade um, and whatnot, the kinds of issues that I'm talking about become much more complex and not as simplified as I provided. However, I wish to point out in a great scheme of things um, how these simplifications add some insight. For instance, Sin, the, the economist, right, wins the Nobel Prize uh, for demonstrating uh, a different kind of spillover, if we can call it that. And that different kind is that uh, he argued, right? There there really are no modern day famines predicated on the fact that local people can't produce their food, right? But rather they lose the access to that food. Mm-hmm. And that's the spillover in this case is that the foods are going someplace else, if we can call that a spillover. Which would be the same, right, as the the, the classic uh, Malthusian crisis of the uh, the Irish potato famine, uh, that that brought so many immigrants to the United States and elsewhere, right? During that time period, massive amounts of food were move, moved from Ireland to Great Britain. So I guess what I'm trying to argue about here is those are real simplifications as well, of which there's much more complexity and nuance. But those they they still provides sort of broad insights as to what's operative in the world.
0: So, Billy, it seems like there's a common theme here, actually. If we look at the case of, say, environmental determinism versus explanations that consider, the, say, the endogeneity of climate, and if we look at the conflict or the competing uh, explanations of Malthus and Basrape, you are, in some ways, moving us from a space of only thinking about explanations as being competing towards a space where they can also be viewed as complementary. It seems to be like a common denominator across these two. Yeah. Do you agree with that?
1: Yes, I do. And I think we need to pay a lot of attention to uh, to your articulation of that, yes.
0: Okay. I mean, I think it's it's important to have explanations compete with each other because it's kind of this Kind of evolutionary framing of science that you know survival of the fittest theory but i also think that there can be as i've kind of implied earlier some of that can kind of mechanize some unhealthy social instincts to kind of beat the other you know outcompete the other group in their theory so that our group mm-hmm. can win out so moving on to some of your most recent work billy you recently published a book entitled the anthropocene with agenda publishing can you talk to me about your motivations for this book? What initially made you think of writing a book like this and what your goals are for the book now that it's published?
1: So most of my life, I never took vacations. Um, I seemed to be so overwhelmed with the number of graduate students and you know, the next grant that you're going to get and whatnot that uh, we didn't spend much time uh, doing such things. Uh, my wife, however, uh, likes to cruise and she insists that we go and I never would go on a cruise. I always thought that was just something that, uh, other people did. I didn't do, but anyway, I, I, started to go and we would sit at tables, uh, with people we didn't know and have interesting chats. And, um, <clears throat> I was always amazed at how many people, at the table, once they learned what I did, would do one of two things. They would either ask very interesting, inquisitive questions about climate change, right? Uh, meaning they really wanted to know, and they didn't quite understand, you know, something like, Oh, I I understand that if the um, um, ocean currents change, the climate's going to change. You know, they very broad questions like that, in which they clearly were interested to those that Basically, didn't believe in climate change, and were trying to get you to, um, uh, you know, tell them that they they were correct. So one day, I actually decided, you know what? What's needed is is a little book that goes through the the Earth system and how people affect the Earth system, and leads us up to sustainability. Uh, so not everyone would want to read this book, but sort of an uh, you know an intellectual that wanted to bring themselves up to par. That was the initial uh, rationale for the book. But as I began to put the questions uh, and I decided to do it as a set of simple questions and answers, I realized that I was actually walking through the steps of the basic course I teach. Mm. Right? I was introducing people to how the Earth system operates, I was introducing to the long history of how people had manipulated right, the uh, the Earth System uh that then got into the argument of well did the uh Anthropocene or Anthropocene, whichever you want to to say, um began. you know, you could make a strong argument as Rudiman and others have done that we were changing the biogeochemical systems uh ten thousand years ago, not just uh, uh the most recently. Uh, and then, then that would get us into the whole question of where we stand today relative to climate change, to the questions of what is sustainability, uh, what are the characteristics of sustainability, how do we, how do we articulate it? Is there really something called um, uh, inclusive wealth that we uh, can measure? a uh, Sustainable society. So I put that all together for an individual who would want to say. How does the earth system operate? How have people over time changed it? Where are we today relative to climate change? And how do we deal with this question uh, of sustainability? What I didn't do in the book and left totally out of the book is the the question of what kinds of strategies are the ones that we ought to be pursuing uh, to try to achieve sustainability? For instance, I did not get into questions of is fracking good? I didn't get into questions of um, different ways to reduce uh, CO2 emissions and whatnot. One reason I didn't go into that uh, vein is because I feel less comfortable in addressing them. And two, I find that when you read the literature on it, it it seems to be so um, um, contentious. You know, among yeah. the various groups of people, I decided that that, that needs another decade or so before I, I would be willing to, to entertain that that
0: community. Although you do, Billy, have a lot of social content in here that is, you know, when I was looking at it, very familiar to me. You've got a question about, you know, the tragedy of the commons. You've got the, I don't, I don't know how you actually pronounce it, the iPad equation, like influence mm-hmm. equals mm-hmm. Uh, affluence technology and population. Not in that order, obviously. So you're looking at a lot of this, the arguments about the, the social drivers of environmental yes. problems. Yes, here. yes, I do. And so for I, to me, that's a very natural pre- precursor. It's, it's very it's, it's at least adjacent to the space where we think about what we do about these things. Because when you talk about what should we do, a lot of that conversation is about arguments about what are the actual causes. Because presumably, once you've established a cause, part of the answer to what you do about it is, well, you address that cause. So it does seem like you're, if you're not explicitly in the space of like thinking about institutional solutions, you're kind of halfway to me, you're already halfway in that space already. And that's some of that content.
1: Right. You're articulating in a slightly different way than, than I, than I was. So yes, Mm -hmm. I do address how the social sciences through time have raised the question of why we do what we do to the environment. Yep. Be that population affluence technology, be that uh, um, changes in political economy, you know, wh- uh, what not. But you're absolutely right that if you can agree upon, you know, which of those are, are are more or less critical, it might give you. But when I was talking about strategies, I was talking more about the technical strategies. That's what I didn't introduce. You didn't see anything okay. in the book about, you know, whether carbon capture is is a is a useful strategy but if we come back to the big broad issues about addressing which of the drivers I think or at least I hope what uh, the book says about each one of those is they're all important that we're in a dangerous situation if we try to avoid, some of them, right? They're all important and we need to take them into account because all of them in some way explain our uh, drivers of, of of what we do to the environment or to the earth system.
0: Billy the the can you weigh in on the concept of the Anthropocene? is this how much work does this really do for us? How helpful do you think it really is versus is this? Do we, do we already know this? And now this is a new way to to advertise yes, that?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, okay. Yes, we knew it. Uh, and uh, when uh, Crutzen came up with the, with the term uh, Anthropocene, although I don't think you, I think in the book I heard, he wasn't the first to use it, but he certainly was the first to popularize it. Paul Crutzen, Nobel laureate who um, passed away just recently. Um, I do think it's important because it, For me, anyway, the definition of the Anthropocene or Anthropocene is the recognition that people now equal nature as a driving force in changing the earth system. And, I mean, we can argue all day about, well, when did that, you know, did did it begin 100 years ago, 500 years ago, right? And that's one particular argument, but when it began is sort of irrelevant to where we are now, which is we, regardless of when it began, we are clearly now in a moment uh, in which what we do uh, um, uh, to the earth system has profound impacts on it and therefore profound impacts on on the sustainability of of us.
0: What do you see yourself doing next in Uh, your own research at Arizona State University and your broader research community? Uh, you mentioned that maybe you'd be interested in writing what we could call a sequel to this book, where you focus a lot on policy. Does that interest you? Uh, and if yes or if no, what other things are interesting yeah. you at this stage?
1: Well, you know, I'm I'm really getting up there in age. I know I look young, but <laughs> uh, I actually am going to retire in a couple of years. I have one more graduate student uh, that'll be number 50 and
0: um five zero five zero and
1: uh, when when that young lady uh, finishes i will um uh, step aside in terms of i I certainly won't stop uh, dealing with various research questions uh that that i'm interested in but they'll almost always be at the synthesis level um Mm. abandoning abandoning my lap uh (laughs) Um, I won't have all the wonderful graduate students and postdocs to uh, sit there and do all the work for me um, apropos this particular book I what I committed to agenda is if it does well and they want to update of the book, I would undertake the update. I'm not sure I would expand it uh, too much unless they were absolutely insistent uh, that that it needed to be expanded. But the other things I think I'll be writing on or thinking about are uh, in in the near future are the various uh, um, frameworks and whatnot that we produced over the years um, to advance um, uh, much of what we call sustainability science. And within sustainable science, my element has been something called land system science or land change science. Uh, all about explaining the degree to which we've changed the uh, land systems of the earth and what that means biophysically and socially and we have all these framings all these frameworks are out there but we don't seem to do anything with these frameworks right so I and I should point out that <laughs> I am an associate editor of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and I bet I get seven frameworks a year maybe eight frameworks a year. Uh, Everyone has a framework. Uh, Once the frameworks get out there, though, I'm not sure that anyone follows them. And so the question then becomes, why are we framing everything as opposed to, you know, putting that research together? Let me give a very good example to that. Really, your mentor, Eleanor Ostrom, created a framework and then went out, right, and created this network of people that systematically followed that framework. In terms of the data collection, you know, so that you could do really robust analysis, uh, analyses. uh, Well, she's sort of unusual in Mm -hmm. being able to make that happen. Uh, For the land systems people, we have all these frameworks. For the vulnerability people, we have all these frameworks. For the resilience people, we have all these frameworks, and yet we don't have really a good set of systematic studies, at least around land and land change. that uh, tell us whether or not these frameworks are providing the kinds of insights that we need uh, to guide us in the future?
0: I strongly agree. We see the same things in my field, Billy. There's a lot of frameworks and it feels like to me, we've long since... We've been experienced for a long time diminishing marginal returns to new frameworks yes. right we've got the frameworks we need yes. we need to use them the bottleneck is not frameworks the bottleneck is systematic data collection with frameworks
1: yes absolutely
0: yeah so i couldn't I, agree I, more <laughs> yeah not, I, I was trying not to kind of grin too broadly as you were talking about this because it's very very affirming are there any other threads Billy that you want to make sure that we return to if we brought something up? Are there other topics that we didn't quite get to that you'd like to return to either your time specifically at ASU, other aspects of your career, other thoughts moving forward? Is there something you want to make sure that we touch no, on? No,
1: I'm I think you did a wonderful job and I'm I think we covered everything that I think I would like to cover. Yeah, I could talk about ASU, but I probably shouldn't. That's <laughs> okay yeah it's it's one of those it it was the best of times and it was the worst of times so
0: it's (laughs) yeah yeah situations
1: but i think virtually every faculty member at every university could make that claim
0: yes it's very therapeutic to have those conversations but not necessarily (laughs) on the record okay all right billy well thanks again for your time you'll hear from me thanks again thank you i appreciated it bye-bye Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, InCommonPodcast.org. The InCommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.